We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 349 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 15. Meanwhile, back on Endeavor. For the past three days, we have studied the exploration of the moon conducted by Dave Scott and Jim Irwin. During this time, Al Worden was alone in the command module performing his own exploration duties. This is the story of Worden's three-day solo flight of Endeavour. After being cooped up together so closely with his fellow astronauts inside Endeavour, Worden enjoyed stretching out for his solo flight. Now, he really got to fly. Like a test pilot checking out a new airplane, Al would gain stick and rudder time in this enhanced version of the command and service module. Strangely enough, Worden did not feel isolated or lonely. He had grown up able to take care of himself and had become a single-seat fighter pilot and was much more comfortable flying by himself than with others. In fact, Al most enjoyed his trips around the backside of the moon where he was totally isolated and even Houston could not contact him on the radio. Al was fascinated by what he was seeing and happy that Dave and Jim had landed safely, but also kind of glad to be rid of them for a while. During the solo flight, Al was intensely busy. He was his own solo science mission now, with his own Capcom, so his work was not confined with Dave and Jim's. First, he turned the spacecraft to aim the sim bay at the lunar surface. Al had meticulously choreographed three days of task ahead of him. The spacecraft would be in sunshine, in shadow, in and out of radio contact with Earth. Al needed to use the sextant, the windows, and the sim bay, each of which would need to be pointed in different directions for different tasks. But he could not just turn the spacecraft any time he felt like it. His fuel was precious and finite. Worden extended the mass spectrometer on a large boom, trying to sniff out any hint of lunar atmosphere or escaping volcanic gas. Scientists particularly thought that areas of lunar sunrises and sunsets might concentrate stray gases. 
they would be extremely tenuous, and that is where they ran into trouble. The spectrometer mostly picked up particles that were brought from Earth. The crew had sprayed clouds of urine along their flight path all the way to the moon, and these urine dumps continued in lunar orbit. The astronauts' frozen pee is probably sprinkled all over the moon. Add rocket engine exhaust, and it is no wonder the mass spectrometer had trouble finding anything else. In another effort to get away from the effects of the spacecraft, Warden also deployed the gamma-ray spectrometer on a large boom to search for radiation emitted by the lunar surface. Al activated other experiments to look for X-rays, plus alpha particles such as radon, which volcanic cracks in the moon might emit. If found, it could reveal activity deep inside the moon. Al even bounced the spacecraft's radio signal off the moon and back to Earth, which gave more details of the surface composition. Worden often needed to control the spacecraft to keep it steadily curving around the moon so that the panoramic camera could look straight down and take clear shots. If Endeavor was out of place, the camera would only capture blurry photographs as the landscape sped past below. Worden was flying over uncharted parts of the moon's far side, so he wanted to get great shots. The camera was a modified version of the device used by the U-2 spy plane and Air Force spy satellites. It was now obsolete, so NASA could use it. That camera was a phenomenal instrument. The lens and the film moved together in one precise motion to image a huge swath of landscape. Using more than a mile of film, Worden took over 1,500 photos, capturing details only a few feet across. When Al returned to Earth, he found he had even captured the shadow of Falcon on the moon and the disturbed lunar dust around the spacecraft where Dave and Jim had walked. The military had placed one condition on the use of the camera, so there was no question of any international incidents. Worden was prohibited from pointing it at the Soviet Union. This was nonsense from a quarter of a million miles away, the best image he would have captured was a fuzzy continent. But it had been a spy camera, so the diplomats had to be satisfied. Another device, the mapping camera, rose out of the Sim Bay on rails. Worden used it to snap precise measured images of smaller patches of terrain. Using a star-seeking camera and a laser beam that bounced off the surface, 
Al could match every photo with the exact angle and distance from the landscape. Shooting stripes of overlapping photos, Worden mapped the moon as explorers of old had mapped the earth. As the endeavor's orbit shifted slightly westward with each revolution, Al mapped a new area on each pass. Worden kept on a precise, intensely busy schedule to open and close lenses and shutters, deploy and retract booms, and orient the spacecraft. But there was more. Al took scientifically valuable photos out of the windows. The moon looked enormous from such a low orbit. From Earth, Al had no sense of the moon's vertical features. But now, as he zipped across the landscape, he saw the outer rings of molten waves formed by meteor impacts frozen into the gunmetal gray mountains that reached 15,000 feet up towards him. Al glimpsed tall central peaks of craters before he saw the surrounding low rims. As he constantly rounded a curved and angled surface, the tops of the hills would peek out over the horizon before he reached them, and once he passed over them, the landscape would plunge thousands of feet in steep, shallowed crater walls. With no atmosphere to soften the view, every crater and boulder was sharp and crisp. It was an alien world, but nevertheless it felt oddly familiar. Thanks to his geologist teacher, Farouk Elbaz, every time Al slid back into sunlight, he recognized features right away. Craters, rills, and overlapping, intermingling lava flows moved past that he recognized from his training. Al felt strangely comfortable. He knew this place. Worden wanted to see if he could spot Dave and Jim on the lunar surface with his own eyes. It was not just curiosity. Knowing their exact position would also help them dock three days later. Finding such a tiny object amid a plain of craters was not easy. But as Al gazed through the sextant, he caught a glint from Falcon's shiny skin then spotted their long shadow. I've got the limb, Warden announced to Mission Control. He's sitting right by a very small crater. Warden quickly rattled off their exact coordinates. Endeavor is passing overhead. Al's got you in sight. And uh, I suspect there are two uh, big cameras that'll be brought to bear on you a little later on. Okay, very good. I bet Al can tell you where we are better than we can. Al says you're just okay, north Jim, of index. Okay, I've got to... North of index, sir. Changes in color and shading fascinated Al as he circled the moon. Looking toward the sun, the lunar surface appeared light brown. Away from the sun, it looked gray. 
Al saw white splashes where fresher craters had blown out flower-like rays of powdery soil. Although Al knew this could not be possible, the bright rays often appeared to be suspended above the surface in a lace-like haze, not scattered across the mountains. The moon looked bleached and desert-like when the sun was directly overhead, as if clay had been mixed with sand. Then, as the sun lowered, evidence of long-ago violent events would appear in the lengthening shadows of old scars and wounds from impacts. Al could see lava flows so thick that they must have crept across the surface in a slow, widening, sticky wave, filling old craters as they wound across the moon. It was like a jigsaw puzzle of features, each with its own secrets to piece together. With no atmosphere, the line between day and night was strikingly distinct. Mountains cast long slashes of blackness across the landscape, and features stood out as if a flashlight had been placed against a rough stucco wall. Al was fascinated by the starkness of the peaks. Al loved to take photos in these shadowy regions, and not only because it helped the scientists. Back on Earth, they could use the shadows to measure the height of lunar features. But there was also a drama and beauty in these locations, and Al concentrated much of his photography there. Streaks of light would create alternating light and shadowy waves that once again stretched and seemed to billow and flutter as endeavor curved into blackness. Al felt like a sailor crossing a dark ocean. He knew photos could never capture what he observed, and neither could his words. Once in darkness, Al tried to take low-light-level photos of astronomical objects. With the moon cutting off light from the sun and earth, the blackness was total. Al would put the camera in the window and try for a 10-second exposure using very fast film. It was tough to hold the spacecraft steady. Al spent a lot of time working to keep Endeavor motionless, but in the end, he decided it was impossible for more than a few seconds at a time. The spacecraft just was not that delicate to maneuver, but he still took some great photos. Endeavor had one window with no ultraviolet shielding or any other protection. Made of quartz, it was absolutely clear. Al had been warned never to look out of that window without sunglasses or be caught in a direct sunbeam. It could have ruined his eyes and burned his skin. But that window was invaluable for photos when Endeavor was in complete darkness. Al Worden would be the first person to fly over the Aristarchus crater. Scientists had asked Worden to study it closely. Astronomers thought they had seen reddish glows there, suggesting the crater was volcanically active. 
It was such a pale, smooth, almost mirror-like crater that even in shadow it looked as if it was gleaming sunlight. But as Al looked at Aristarchus, he did not see any glowing. But other instruments picked up possible traces of seeping radioactive gases. Something interesting was going on there. He hoped his measurements would help scientists discover what it was. Most of Al's observations grew out of his extensive training with Farouk. But the perception of human eyes allowed him to note subtle differences from Farouk's photos and theories almost right away. For example, as he flew over the immense Tiakovsky crater, he saw that the enormous central peak was a little higher and the outside rim was better defined than they had imagined. In photos, the smooth, lava-filled crater floor looked darker than its surroundings, but Al could see that it was different only in texture, not color. The crater was so vast that when he crossed it, he could see little else. The central peak rose like a Swiss Alp, a towering pale slab of rock surrounded by boulders hundreds of feet wide. Gazing closely, he could see details of rock layers no camera had ever captured. It looked like something had smashed into the moon eons ago, like a stone into a pond, leaving a rippled crater a smooth basin of lava, and a central peak rebounding out of the lunar depths. It reminded Al of a bright island rising from dark, smooth waters. Gliding over Picard Crater, Al could see delicate layers of lava, like rings on a bathtub, all the way down the crater walls to the bottom. They alternated between thin, light, and dark bands. This beautiful effect was hard to capture on camera, but he could observe it visually and describe it in detail. The moon was overwhelmingly majestic, yet stark and mostly devoid of color. Every orbit, however, Al was treated to the sight of the distant Earth rising over the lunar horizon. In his entire six days circling the moon, no matter what he was doing, he always stopped to look at the earth rise. It was the most beautiful thing he had ever seen or imagined. The earth was the only place with color. Distant blues, browns, and greens, all focused in one tiny globe. Ethereal and small, it shone in the deep black of space, much brighter than the full moon appears from Earth. Photos of the Earth from the moon have a flat quality, but looking at it with his own eyes, Earth felt alive and captivating. It seemed to beckon like a warm refuge, more than a gorgeous sight. It was home. Earth had seemed limitless when he had walked out on launch morning. Now it was a faraway sphere, so small 
that it was hard to believe everything he had ever done, everything he had seen, had happened down there. Al now felt apart from earthly affairs in a way that can only be understood if you visit the moon yourself. But Al could see that earth was truly finite. That distant ball could only support so many people and contain so many resources. Once it was gone, it was gone. If humans did not unite and organize their lives, he pondered that we all would be in great trouble. Like so many astronauts who took this trip, it was a mind-altering experience. Al had journeyed all this way to explore the moon, and yet he felt he was discovering far more about the earth. As the days passed, Al watched the earth change phases, just as the moon does from earth. When he arrived, the earth was about half full, but it gradually diminished to a delicate crescent. Only when he looked back at the earth rising did he understand how far he had traveled. He was isolated with only the radio to stay in touch. If he thought too much about it, it was almost a little scary. But not the isolation. It was the sheer distance. They had a long journey ahead of them. Farouk and Al had worked on something special for every time he saw the earth rise. They had noticed that, to the public, previous astronauts flying around the moon seemed kind of ho-hum, nothing exciting. They wanted to somehow make it more interesting to the public. Worden and Farouk decided that Al would say something interesting with a phrase that they thought might grab everyone's attention for every earth rise, such as, Hello, Earth. Greetings from Endeavor. Farouk wrote it out for Worden phonetically in nine languages, Arabic, Chinese, French, Greek, Hebrew, Italian, German, Spanish, and even Russian. Along with English, Al had ten different ways to say hello to the citizens of the world and make the point that the Apollo program was for the whole Earth, not just the United States. The plan worked. Al tried to transmit a different variation on every solo orbit, and the world press paid a little more attention to the flight. Al had brief opportunities each day to talk to Dave and Jim down on the surface. It sounded like they were toiling through an impressive science exploration schedule of their own. Al could even look down into the deep reel while passing over Hadley Plain and see enormous rocks in the canyon at the exact moment Dave and Jim were parked at the rim in their rover. And as Al passed overhead, he sometimes had the opportunity to speak with Dave and Jim. How are things going up there? 
good, lots of good data. Yeah, we are too. We're uh, a little over 100 pounds today. Got up the side of the map. Got a good look around. Things are going real well. Oh man, it was super, just super. We got some great pictures for you. Yeah, I tell you, I hope you can see these rover tracks because uh, out front of the limb here it looks like a freeway. Yeah, I bet it does. Well, you collect another bunch of rocks tomorrow and bring them home. Okay, make a nice little place for them. Yeah, we'll make place for whatever you bring home. Okay, very good. Yeah, I'll uh, throw my soap down, will you? My soap. Get something, Jim. I really need my soap. Don't mind if I use it, do you? Well, I haven't had a chance to use it yet, but I might tonight. I, I suggest you wait for the moment. Yeah, that's true. We'll pay for us all to do that tomorrow night. How are they holding up? Very well. I understand the rover is doing fine. Sounds great. Dave and Al bantered about saving the soap until they were all back in lunar orbit again. The conversations were light-hearted, but had the effect of assuring them that everything would go to plan. Falcon would lift off and rendezvous with Endeavor in space. They were going to survive and see each other again. Al looked for Dave and Jim every time he flew across the landing site. It was never easy to find them, and usually he only caught a quick reflection from Falcon before he lost them, and yet he felt closer to them than the people in Houston he was talking to all the time. It was reassuring to chat briefly every day and confirm he was still there for their return trip. While Scott and Irwin were roaming the surface, Al was hanging in weightlessness, so he needed to exercise. He had a small cylindrical device called the Exergym. It consisted of a nylon rope wove through a series of friction pulleys, so when he pulled on it, the friction created tension that he could exercise against. It was a great idea, but it did not work well. Before the astronauts had reached the moon, the nylon started to fray. Then it would heat up when they used the device and stretch the rope into useless threads. Now this was puzzling because crews before them had taken it and said it worked fine. Al suspected that they really hadn't used it that much. But Worden still needed to exercise, so he improvised. With the center couch removed, he could hold on to the two struts in the middle of the spacecraft and push against them. 
He could do deep knee bends and run in place with his legs freewheeling in air. He felt his heart rate rise and could watch the attitude indicator and see the entire spacecraft rocking back and forth. Still, while floating around in weightlessness, Al did not burn much energy. The ground had assigned him seven or eight hours of sleep a day, but he found he only needed three to four. It was not because he was nervous. It was more because he was excited. He had a lot to do, so he didn't bother telling Mission Control he was awake. Al used some of this time to finish up experiments and take photographs, but he also had hours of free time around the moon to just look out, marvel, and think. Al knew he would never be coming back to the moon, so he took extra care to absorb every sensation, every experience. He also believed that it was not just for him personally. With only two lunar missions left after Apollo 15, he understood it would be years before humans would return. He needed to experience it for everyone. Therefore, when Al curved around the moon to where no sunlight or earthshine could reach him, the moon became a deep, solid circle of blackness, and he could only tell where it began by where the stars cut off. In the dark and quiet, he felt like a bird of the night silently gliding and falling around the moon never touching. He turned the cabin lights off, and there was no end to the stars. He could see tens or perhaps hundreds of times more stars than the clearest, darkest night on earth. With no atmosphere to blur their light, he could see them all to the limits of his eyesight. There were so many He could no longer find constellations. His vision was filled with a blaze of starlight. Unlike some other astronauts who had time only for hurried glances, he had many hours spread over many days to look at this awe-inspiring view and think about what it meant. There was more to the universe than he had ever imagined. As he looked at the blaze of stars, he conceptualized life out there as continuous, like seeds flying through the air, some surviving, some not. He envisioned life spreading between the stars, timeless, always there, adapting, propagating, spurred by survival. These feelings were amplified by the sensation of weightlessness. It seemed so natural, so comfortable, as if he were coming home, as if he had been that way before, or belonged in space. He didn't come to any conclusions, but what he strongly sensed was that we, as a species, have not yet experienced enough of the universe. Whatever we believe now is probably not accurate. 
We have developed our ideas based only on what we can see and touch and measure. Now, as he gazed into infinity, he could only dimly sense, not understand, the journey ahead for humans. It was humbling for a Michigan farm boy whose biggest worry at one time had been 30 acres of hay. Alone on the far side of the moon, in darkness, as far from other humans as it was possible to be, he drank in the experience over days and long sleepless nights. He would ponder his experience in those intense hours for the rest of his life. Returning to the science, Al had been observing the lithro region of the moon extensively because scientists were curious about the darker soils there. Could they be evidence of volcanic activity? On one pass, Worden spotted something unusual. A whole series of small, irregular-shaped cones with a very distinct dark mantling. It looked like a whole field of small cinder cones. Al recognized these features from his studies. Unlike craters created by meteorites, cinder cones build up as debris is pushed out from a volcanic vent. The cones were somewhat irregular in shape, not all round, and they had a very dark halo, which was mostly symmetric, but not always. Mission planners had told Al he would not be able to see features that small, but that was not the case. If he stared hard at a fixed point, it was tough to resolve, but if he swept his eyes around the general area, he could see a lot more detail. As Al described these funnels, surrounded by dark rings, the geologist back on Earth grew excited. So much so that the last Apollo lunar mission, Apollo 17, was targeted for the Lithro region. On Al's last morning alone around the moon, he was awoken by a blast of mariachi trumpets. With the serene lunar surface gliding below him, Herb Albert's Tijuana taxi was about the strangest music mission control could pipe up over the radio. But it did the job and woke him up. Capcom informed Al that he could expect some company later this afternoon. And on the surface, Dave and Jim suited up for their final moonwalk before they began preparations to lift off and rejoin Al. They all had a busy day ahead, even if everything went according to plan. If it didn't, it would be even busier. Endeavor's orbital path had drifted during the past three days, so it no longer passed over Hadley Plain. Al had to fire the engines for 18 seconds to get back over the landing site, and it was a perfect burn. 
As Warden glided over the landing site, he noticed how much the sun angle had changed in the three days since they landed. The plane was almost in shadow when they arrived. Now the sun was much higher. The plane would be growing very warm. The scientists following the Simbe experiments were delighted with the data rolling in, but the equipment was slowly failing. The booms still extended, but they had begun to stick when Al retracted them, forcing him to pulse them in short bursts to come in all the way. A sensor in the panoramic camera also acted up, resulting in fewer good images, and the laser didn't fire as frequently as it should. However, for new and untried equipment, it had worked pretty well. As it turned out, the laser experiment had measured the height of the mountains, and the X-ray data showed what the mountains were made of. The highest mountains contained the lightest materials, such as aluminum. Lighter elements rise in molten lava, so these results strongly suggested that the moon had once been largely a ball of hot lava. It was a major discovery about how the moon formed. Not only that, it also meant that unlike Earth, the moon had probably not changed much since it cooled. Al was delighted he had helped solve a major mystery. This discovery alone was worth the cost of the flight. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 349 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 15, Meanwhile on Endeavor. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released in two weeks on October 22nd. If you're new to the podcast, what we're trying to accomplish here is a timeline approach to the exploration of space. I began in ancient times and now I have reached the year 1971. I try to cover the most significant space missions of each year, which includes manned and unmanned missions from all the countries in the world. Now up to this point, that has been mainly the U.S. and U.S.S.R., but we have covered other countries as well. Something else to be aware of, if you're listening on the main feed of the podcast, you will not see all the episodes. I have the first 177 episodes available on the Archive podcast. To find them, search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. If you would like a better copy of those Archive episodes as they were originally released with all the afterthoughts, they are available for download on the homepage at spacerockethistory.com.
Okay, I had a few afterthoughts on this episode. In case you didn't hear this last time, the main podcast and the archive are available on Amazon Music now. And best of all, it is free. I wish to apologize. There weren't very many clips available for this episode. Apparently, Al Worden's solo flight was of much less importance than the moon landing, which I can understand that. But I felt that Al deserved his moment in the spotlight. After all, it was the first three-day solo flight around the moon, and he conducted more science than any previous mission. And he seemed to enjoy the solitude. Now, the second clip you heard was a repeat from episode 347, but this time from Al's perspective instead of Dave and Jim's. But I do want to apologize for the audio quality of that clip. I did everything I could to improve it, but you just cannot hear everyone consistently. Sometimes you can't hear Al, sometimes you can't hear Dave. So, sorry about that. Now, as you know, sometimes I like to imagine how I would deal with with some of the astronauts' experiences. So, if I were Al Worden during the solo flight, I think I would have loved the views But I don't think I would have enjoyed the solitude. Three days alone around the moon, that far away from the earth. Could I handle that? (laughs) For those of you who know me well, being alone is not one of my favorite things. Additionally, being that far away from Mrs. SRH would be very difficult. You see, for the past 40 years, we have been just about inseparable. Now, I would say missing her would have been the hardest part for me. On the other hand, for Mrs. SRH, this could have been a lifelong dream for her. (laughs) Just think, she could have gotten a nice long break from the Mr. SRH experience. (laughs) Okay, this is the final reminder for everyone. Next episode, we will have the Tang Ceremony. That will be episode 350. What we do is celebrate episode milestones, and 350 is quite a milestone. And we do that with the astronaut's so-called favorite drink, which is, of course, Tang. (laughs) So, if you want to participate, procure some Tang before October 22nd. If you're enjoying the podcast without commercial interruptions and are financially able, please consider supporting the podcast. For over seven and a half years, we have been entirely listener-supported. 
to contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Over the last fortnight, we had a few new contributions, and I would like to thank Thomas M. from Illinois, who donated at the Starship level. Robert M. from San Antonio, Texas, sent in another donation and moved to the Apollo level. Andy S. from the Czech Republic sent in another donation and moved to the Apollo level. Peter M. from Hollywood, Northern Ireland, donated at the Mercury level. Paul K. from Wisconsin donated at the Mercury level and earned a galaxy emoji. And Joe K. from the USA pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level. Thank you very much. Our total Patreon donors have reached uh, 247. We actually lost three over the change in month from September to October. Our goal, of course, is to reach 300 by the end of the year. Our total donors for 2020 have reached 399 with a goal of reaching 500 by the end of the year. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. Now, in response to Mike's comments about being apart from me, oh, how he makes me laugh. Of course I would miss him. I cannot and I do not want to even imagine how it would feel to have him so far away from me. We have been able to at least talk to one another every day since we first met, and that is over 40 years ago, even when Mike was away on business trips. You know, it would be so tough, but how could I not encourage him to take such an opportunity? Now, are you ready for the SRH winner for this episode? Remember, you'll get the choice of a space rocket history magnet, or two coasters, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or the new SRH archive magnet. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Craig Winfield. Craig Winfield, if you would email us, Mike, at spacerockethistory.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 399 of you who have contributed thus far in 2020. My sources for this episode were Falling to Earth, an Apollo 15 Astronaut's Journey to the Moon by Al Worden. Of course, I relied on this source the most, even quoting parts of it directly because it was his story and he was the primary source. I also used NASA, Two Sides of the Moon by David Scott, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, To Rule the Night by Jim Irwin, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Apollo 15 Flight Journal, Apollo 15 Lunar Surface Journal, The Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for this episode. I will try to have episode 350 posted by Thursday, October 22nd. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.